a brief history on the modern-day tongues movement. And uh, really the big question that we want to ask is this, and that is where did the modern-day tongues movement come from? Um, one might assume, and actually before I give you this, let's go ahead and play a brief intro video. And when I play this, this is going to give you a little bit of a further insight into this movement. Actually, I believe it was 2020 or Nightline several years ago did a report on the modern-day tongues movement. And I want you to be listening to all of it, but, well, and of course, some of it you won't be able to understand. But at the end of it, I want you to catch what the uh, person who was visiting the church did and then also capture what the pastor of this big mega church said, because that's going to come back into play as we go through this. So this is about a three-minute video. Watch this. It'll give you a little bit of further insight into what we're talking about this evening. Well, what you just heard is, of course, the phenomenon known as speaking in tongues. And to outsiders, it's gibberish. But to believers, it's God's gift to chosen followers. And in fact, it's said in the Bible that all the apostles had this strange verbal rapture. Well, here's what we've been told about speaking in tongues, that this is a gift that can come to you suddenly, that the words are prayer in its purest form, like a current running through you straight from heaven, and hundreds of millions are joining in. Our Dr. Nancy Snyderman set out to learn more about this, beginning with the pastor of a huge congregation in Florida, who says his gift is also his armor. It's an unrecognizable mix of vowels and consonants, which believers say is the Holy Spirit speaking through them to God, without any interference from the mind or any limitations of language. The proof is in the pudding. Is, is the way that I like to see it. There are two billion Christians in the world today, 523 million speak in tongues. So there's something going on. Oh, hallelujah! And his following proves it with a membership of 10,000 people who pray at his church in Tampa, Florida, called Without Walls International. Oh, this actually goes beyond the natural. People want the supernatural. They're hungry for something that is outside of the natural realm. And that's what the gifts of the Holy Spirit is all about. We're tapping into something that's far beyond us. claim to have the ability to speak in tongues believe that they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. But to a newcomer, it's incomprehensible. I probably sat about midway through a service and then thought, those two people up on the stage, and that was Pastor Randy and Paula White, are crazy. It looked like chaos to me. People falling on the floor, people praying in things that I didn't understand, and, I, and the band singing and everybody, and I turned around and I walked out. He says people want to experience religion, to feel it. As you catch that, at the very end of that, um, the lady said that the pastor said that people want to experience religion, they want to feel it. And that's so important as we look at the history here of the modern day tongues movement. So where did this movement come from? One might assume 
that this manifestation, the modern-day tongues movement, has been ongoing since the first century. But if you study church history, you'll be hard-pressed to find a single instance of this for close to 1,800 years of church history. In fact, in Topeka, Kansas, in 1901, at a small Christian college, Bethel Bible School, there was a small group of college students who were meeting for Bible study and prayer, and they were studying Acts chapter 2, and they asked the question, why doesn't Acts chapter 2 still happen today? So they were reading Acts chapter 2, where we were at this morning, and they were asking the question, why doesn't this still happen today? And so they began to pray for the Holy Spirit to fall on them like he did on the disciples in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So on New Year's Eve, after several days and weeks of praying for this, on New Year's Eve, 1901, they were praying for this specific manifestation of the Spirit and one particular college student named Agnes Osman. Agnes Osman approached her professor, who was also at that prayer meeting. His name is Charles Parham. And she asked if he would lay his hands on her and pray for her to receive the gift of the Spirit. Now, before we go any further, I hope you already have a problem with this theologically in the fact that we already have the Holy Spirit if we've been saved. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We don't need a second um, baptism of the Holy Spirit. When you got saved is when you got baptized with the Holy Spirit, and you were sealed to the day of redemption, Ephesians chapter 4 says. So hopefully you've already caught on to the fact that uh, we didn't come in here tonight and say, okay, Holy Spirit, fall upon us. Um, Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place. Hello, he's already right here. Um, there's a lot of nice, touchy-feely songs that, you know, we, we actually sang in good Baptist churches growing up that are just theologically inaccurate. But anyway, uh, that's not the first time or the last time. And so this situation was going on. They were in a prayer meeting on New Year's Eve, 1901, and Agnes Osmond asked her college professor, who was also at the meeting, Charles Parham, to lay hands on her so that she would receive the Holy Spirit. And here's what Charles Parham said, and I have several quotes from him. He said, I laid my hands upon her and prayed. I had scarcely completed three dozen sentences when a glory fell upon her. A halo seemed to surround her head and face, and she began speaking the Chinese language and was unable to speak English for three days. When she tried to write in English to tell us of her experience, she wrote Chinese. Now, how do we know that she wrote Chinese? How could we verify that? Well, thankfully, we actually have a photograph of what she wrote. And here that is. Does that look like Chinese? Every known linguist will tell you that's not Chinese. That's not, that's just scribbles on a paper. And so, if you're a linguist, you can clearly see that this is not any language, let alone Chinese. But at least Charles Parham, even though I don't think he knew exactly that it was Chinese, at least he was assuming correctly, based on his proper Bible knowledge from Acts 2, that what this manifestation was, was actually a foreign language. Did you catch that? That he said this was Chinese language. He goes on to say this. He says, the Lord will give us the power, based on this experience that Agnes had, that he, ha that, that he had a part of, he said, the Lord will give us the power of speech to talk to the people of the various nations without having to study them in schools. Again, like I said this morning, this would be great for every missionary that we support. 
that would help us not have to support them in language school for three to four years, and they could just start speaking the language. I uh, have traveled on a couple of missions trips, and it would have been great not to preach with an interrupter, I mean interpreter. That would have been great. You know, uh, I preached in Ghana, and it would have been great just to be able to, by the power of the Spirit, to speak in the Twi language. That would have been excellent. Or uh, speak in Spanish down in Mexico with Brother Dan Rogers. And so, but what's fascinating about the very beginning of the modern day tongues movement, 1901, in fact, the book where a lot of this information is from is from a book by John MacArthur entitled Charismatic Chaos. If you want to pick up a copy of that on Kindle or buy a copy of that, it's fairly affordable. Very fascinating as you study the history. But what's so interesting about the very beginnings of the modern day tongues movement, and and tongues, you'll be hard pressed to find one instance of it after the book of Acts, after Corinthians, in church history for 1,800 years. But in 1901, at least what's fascinating is when this was supposedly manifest, Dr. Parham assumed that this was an actual foreign language. Of course, we can see that that's probably not what it was, but he assumed that. In fact, he goes on to say, a part of our labor will be to teach the church the uselessness of spending years of time preparing missionaries for work in foreign lands, when all they have to do is ask God for the power, and they'll be able to speak in that foreign language. He goes on to say, The students of Bethel College do not need to study in the old way to learn the languages. They have them conferred on them miraculously. Different ones have already been able to converse with Spaniards, Italians, Bohemians, Hungarians, Germans, and French in their own language. He concludes and says, I have no doubt various dialects of the people of India and even the language of the savages of Africa will be received during our meeting in the same way. I expect this gathering to be the greatest since the day, the days of Pentecost. And so the reason I share that right there at the very inception of what you would call the modern day tongues movement is at least as it was starting out, whether it was a proper manifestation or not, at least Dr. Parham took what he knew of Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 19 and assumed that these were actual foreign languages used in a missional sense to propagate the gospel to the peoples of the world. And so Bethel College did the following. Catch this. They would take 18 students and send them out to various countries in the years that followed to Japan, China, and India. They didn't know the language. They sent them out onto these fields without any language school. They sent them there believing that when they got there, the gift of tongues would be given to them that they were experiencing already there at Bethel College on a regular basis on the campus, and they would then be able to win people to Christ because they would be able to speak their language. What happened? If you study history, it's an inconvenient truth of history that all of them came back from those fields having failed and questioning why they couldn't speak in those foreign languages. Now, here's what will happen at that point. If someone tries and they fail, they'll say, oh, well, you just didn't have enough faith. Where's the focus then? The focus is clearly taken off of Christ, and it's placed right, oh, well, do I have enough faith? Do I have enough faith? Do I have enough faith? And so that's the the pat answer when... Um, these things don't work out. Well, you just didn't have enough faith. Or, or, or when someone goes to a faith healing service and they get healed and then they get sick again a month later, oh, well, you just didn't have enough faith. That's the answer. And so this missions endeavor 
of going to foreign fields, seeking to have the gift of glossolalia, and that's the Greek word, that's the subject here of what we're dealing with, the gift of tongue speaking. Glossolalia is the Greek root of it. This, uh, yeah, and there's Santa saying Merry Christmas on my phone. Sorry, that's not the gift of tongues. Anyway, um, and so they sent these people and they failed. Now, again, Dr. Parham was thinking, oh, well, this is a gift of a real language. These are miraculous in nature, and this will be undeniable, and it will result in many people coming to know Christ. Sadly, rather than taking the experience of those failed missionary journeys that they had sent their college students on, and perhaps coming back to the Scripture and looking deeper, and seeing that maybe the book of Acts in the first century was more of a localized event rather than an ongoing event, rather than doing that, they changed their interpretation of Scripture to line up with their experience. And this is the big issue I want to drive home to us tonight. And it's simply this. We have to be careful of bringing our own interpretive bias to the text because of experience. Experience always plays second fiddle to the primary reality of the truth of Scripture. If we don't have that, we don't have a foundation to stand upon. If we allow experience to be our guide, we are on very, very shaky foundations to begin with. And so this is what happens. And so the modern-day tongues movement starts out with some sense of moorings to Scripture, but then they take their failed experience of glossolalia going to modern or going to foreign countries and seeking to speak foreign languages to win the lost to Christ, and they come back and they begin to reinterpret Scripture, and they say, oh, well, the gift of tongues is just your prayer language. It's just what you do before the Lord, and it's, it's just something that you do. And so as you begin to study this movement of glossolalia, glo- you know, I practiced this for hours wanting to say this right. It's a tongue twister in and of itself. Glossolalia, glossolalia. You want to say that with me? Three times fast? Glossolalia. Glossolalia. Anyway, William Samarin, a linguist, would say this. He says, There is no mystery about glossolalia. Recorded samples are easy to obtain and to analyze. You just saw many on, on this video. They always turn out to be the same thing. Strings of syllables made up of sounds taken from among all those that the speaker knows, put together more or less haphazardly, but which nevertheless emerge as word-like and sentence-like units because of realistic language-like rhythm and melody. Many linguists have actually studied this. In fact, at the end of tonight's study, I'm going to give you a quote from a lady by the name of Felicitas Goodman, a philosophical anthropologist and linguist who has studied this extensively and written a book entitled Speaking in Tongues, a Cross-Cultural Study in Glossolalia, by Felicitas Goodman. And so Samarin says here that these are known syllables that people put together in these random sentence-like units. He goes on to say, glossolalia is indeed like language in some ways, but this is only because the speaking unconsciously wants it to be like language. Yet in spite of superficial similarities, glossolalia is fundamentally not language. All specimens of glossolalia that have ever been studied have produced no features that would even suggest that they reflect some kind of communicative system. He would go on to say that glossolalia is not a supernatural phenomenon. In fact, anybody can produce glossolalia if he is uninhibited and if he discovers what the trick is. 
This morning, I shared with you a video of, a, of an adult teaching children to speak in tongues. Now I'm going to show you a video of an adult teaching other adults to speak in tongues. How many of you have ever heard of Sid Roth? It's Supernatural. He has a show somewhere on cable. Um, listen very closely because this, to me, brothers and sisters, is troubling. Follow my instructions. The anointing is here to do the rest. I can't do it for you, but I can tell you how to pray in supernatural languages. So you start speaking like little baby words and say them as fast as you humanly can when I begin to pray. And when the supernatural will become natural as you take a step, Peter, of faith. Raise your hands to the Holy God and begin to pray in a language you've never been instructed. If you don't move your tongue and speak, no one else will do it. I know you don't know what to say. Make little nonsense syllables up. They're not nonsense. But if the first words coming out of your spirit, do it faster. I said faster. I said faster. You can do it faster than that. If I had a gun in your ribs, you'd do it faster. you know what the, i figured out how how to motivate us now I, I need to put a gun in your ribs did you catch that folks if this is of the spirit you don't need to manufacture it and that is manufactured oh i'm gonna try to control myself it's just incredible uh, speak baby words he almost seemed angry and that is not the spirit and so there's a church that is fairly well known within mainstream Christianity in fact uh, well known for their music uh, they have heavily influenced modern worship and hymnody. In fact, they've written... Oh, sorry, guys. I'll go ahead to the next screen. Y'all can go ahead and see the next quote. Um, sorry. There we go. I'm good. Um, and they've written very powerful songs. Uh, many of them, even I, th I think some folks have sang here. A uh, well-known pastor of a mega church, and he basically did the same thing that this guy did. He, he, he preached a sermon on tongues and then basically trained people in how to do it. As you study the book of Acts, chapter 2, chapter 11, chapter 19, you don't see the disciples going through a training class to teach people how to do this. Again, what lines up with Scripture? And so, let me be careful in stating my case tonight, going through this early history of the modern-day tongues movement and dealing with what are some concerns of mine. Again, we have a humble orthodoxy here. We're open, but we're also very skeptical. 
Can God all of a sudden plant somebody in the jungles of Africa and give to them the supernatural gift of reaching an African jungle with the gospel? Hey, you know what? I'm not going to rule out anything, but I'm going to be very skeptical unless it's clearly proven and they're following biblical methods in doing it, right? And so we're open but skeptical because we see these things and we see examples like this and you just sit there and you shake your head at what some are doing. And so my question is, is as we see these things, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we comparing this to Scripture? There were no tongue-speaking classes in Scripture, and also it wasn't gibberish. It was a real known language that, that these people from other parts of the world were hearing, and they were hearing the message of the gospel. So instead of concluding that Acts chapter 2 was perhaps a unique moment in church history, the modern-day charismatic movement on the whole has gone back to the Scripture seeking to reinterpret the truth of Scripture with an emotional and, a, and an ecstatic experience. Listen, feelings can be powerful, but truth is more important than feelings every single time. Amen, preacher. Yay, that's right. I know it's a Sunday night. Truth is more important than feelings. Quite frankly, I don't care about your feelings. I care about truth because that's what should reign supreme in any gospel preaching church, folks. And so, like I said this morning, have, have some of my charismatic friends opened me up to the reality that sometimes I'm too stoic? Sure. But at the same time, we have to be careful that we do not let emotions interpret truth. Um, I'm going to quote here Wayne Grudem. I don't, I don't agree with Wayne Grudem on everything. He would be more of a Reformed uh, uh, scholar than I would be. Um, but on this, he's dead accurate. He says, It should be said at the outset that the Greek word glossa, translated tongue, is not used only to mean the physical tongue in a person's mouth, but also to mean language. In the New Testament passage where speaking in tongues is discussed, the meaning languages is certainly in view. Catch that. It's certainly in view. And here's what's fascinating about Wayne Grudem. He's a continuationist. What's a continuationist? Someone who believes that this gift of tongues is still in use for the church today, but even he said it's a foreign language. See, I would hold more to, to, to the cessationist view, unless I've got clear proof to the contrary. And why would I believe that? I'll share a couple of verses here in just a moment of why I believe or hold to a cessationist position. Now, if you're not a cessationist, does that mean you're not welcome here at Fairview? Of course not. Of course you're welcome here. But we're not going to allow uh, cessationists or continuationists to get tied up in arguments and argue and cause division in our church. The same way we're not going to let folks who are more reformed than others, uh, who might be less reformed, cause division in our church. The same reason we're not going to let someone who thinks that there's just one English translation or someone who thinks that there's other translations, cause a division in our church. Those are secondary matters. And what I said this morning is so true. Spiritual maturity allows us to disagree on secondary issues without vilifying one another. Man, I hope we can get back to that in the church. Get away from the social media outrage that seems to permeate everything in our society today. And so Wayne Grudem goes on to say, he says, It's unfortunate, catch this, therefore, that English translations have, have continued to use the phrase speaking in tongues. This is an expression not otherwise used in ordinary English, and which gives the impression of a strange experience, something completely foreign to ordinary human life. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that the translators didn't really go all the way in their translation. I got another example of that. 
Do you know that the Greek or the, the English word baptism is a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo? And do you know that the King James translators were afraid to translate the true meaning of baptizo, which means to submerse or immerse, to submerge or immerse? Because at that time, the Church of England did not practice full immersion baptism, and so they did not want to say immersed, and so they actually created an English word, baptism. And so, uh, what do translators do sometimes? They're afraid to translate fully because people might not buy their translations. And so Grudem goes on to say, but if English translations were to use the expression speaking in languages, it would not seem nearly as strange and would give the reader a sense much closer to what first century Greek speaking readers would have heard in the phrase when they read it in Acts and in 1 Corinthians. And the context of Acts gives to us this truth that they were speaking in languages because they all said, how do we hear in our own language? I'm not saying that it wasn't supernatural. I'm not saying that there, it totally had to be of God, but it was a known language, and it's not what we see today. So Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19, um, Acts 11, when Peter, this is fascinating, when Peter had witnessed to the house of Cornelius and they got saved, the Spirit descended and they began to speak in tongues. Notice what Peter says about that experience. As I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Speaking of Acts 2, Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us. So Peter is saying they received the same thing. They were speaking in foreign languages. He says, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? So this tongues gift was given to the Gentiles too to show that both Jew and Gentile had now been brought into this beautiful union called the church, the body of Christ. And so these sign gifts were given, why? Because people, the Jews specifically, required a sign, but Greeks sought after wisdom. And so for the Jews, this sign of tongues was powerful. It was a fulfillment of Isaiah 28, 13. And so to the Jew, this would have been a very powerful fulfillment of prophecy from 700 years previous. And so this passage, along with all the others, if you study them out, Acts 2, 10, 11, 19, 1 Corinthians 12, 14, the only areas in the Word that mention the gift of tongues, every story of speaking in tongues in the Bible, they were real languages that the speakers did not know. And so what you find, sadly, in the modern-day charismatic movement is they tend to redefine things. Convenient. So we redefine the word tongues to no longer mean a foreign language, but this mystical prayer language that only God knows and that we don't even know. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14, because I didn't have a chance to bring this out this morning, but I just want you to see something. This is so important um, that we make sure that we see what God's saying here. And so verse 22, I read this to you this morning, Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. Now that lady in the video, she walked out. She walked out of the service halfway through because what did she say? She says what they were doing up there was chaos, was crazy, was confusion. And God's not the author of that. And so if tongues are to meant to be a sign for those who don't believe, then in that situation, and I don't know whether that lady was a believer at that point when she went into that service or not, 
But clearly, to people from the outside coming in, this is going to look like a lot of confusion and chaos. But look back at verse, um, uh, verse 19 and 20. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I do think I read this, but I just want to emphasize verse 19. Yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Wow. So Corinth had elevated this gift of tongues, and what did Paul just do? He just de-elevated it. He just said, you have taken one gift and you have elevated it to an un improper place and you're drawing attentions to yourselves in a wrong way. You're causing confusion. People looking on who don't know Christ are being weirded out. And I think even more so you have some indication here that they had taken a pagan practice from the temple of Apollo and they assumed that this was something that they could practice under the Christian umbrella. And so, charismatics, unfortunately, tend to redefine things. They take tongues and they redefine it. They take the word prophecy and they say now that prophecy no longer has to be specific. It, it can be general uh, sense of things and it doesn't even necessarily have to be 100% uh, accurate because, after all, if you make a prophecy and it doesn't come true, you just didn't have enough faith. Anyway, um, they'll call providence a miracle. They will call an impression that they have, maybe from the Holy Spirit, but they'll call an impression prophecy, and they will call answered prayers healings. And so these sign gifts specifically, I believe, were given to the first century church, and the reason that I'm a cessationist is because I believe these sign gifts were given to the first century church, specifically to the Jews, to spread the gospel more quickly around the world. I think based on the law first mentioned with the gift of tongues, you see that in Acts chapter 2, and that carries forward. But I want to give to you a few verses for why I base that, and then we'll close tonight. The Bible says this in Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now remember, who is the book of Hebrews primarily written to? Jewish unbelievers who have yet to trust in the Messiah. Technically a mixed audience. There, there, there were saved, but it was written to both saved and unsaved. And in these warning passages, I don't know how people read the warning passages of Hebrews and not assume that these are unsaved people. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? These are people who have not received salvation yet, but it's being written to a Jewish individual, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto them that heard him, speaking of the apostles, God also bearing witness with them, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Notice this verse. That word confirmed is in the Greek aorist tense, which means a one-time past action, it's done. And so God confirmed these things to the Jews through the apostles, through these signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost. So why am I a cessationist? Number one, because of Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. Number two, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Charity never fails, but where there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, word of knowledge, prophetic, it shall vanish away. And what's going to remain? Love. Now, people will argue over the timing of this. Whether it was the first century, whether it was the third century, I can't answer that. But what I can answer is that this text is making the case that these things, and what's fascinating about the verbs here in this passage, they're passive, which means they'll cease in and of themselves. 
they will fade off the scene. Many scholars believe that the reason for those sign gifts in the first century also was because there was not a completed revelation of the Word of God in front of people that they had. I mean, every time I open this book, it's a miracle. It's a miracle that I can read God's Word in front of me today. And so we don't need to look beyond God's Word for some miraculous experience. If we have the Lord, if we have the Gospel, if we have His love, we have enough. And so the reality is, is in our life, we tend to be always looking for another experience that we are somehow in need of pursuing rather than being at rest in what has already been given to us. Did you catch in the video this morning at the very beginning, I know you've slept since then probably and ate some lunch since then, but did you catch at the very beginning of that video what the guy said as the woman was shaking around and as she fell to the floor? He said, there's your breakthrough. Here's your breakthrough. Gotta always be seeking for a new breakthrough because you don't have it yet. And that's how religion continues to peddle all these things to people. And if you don't, and so you just need more. You just need more. But what does the gospel say? It says you're complete in him. You don't need to look for any more. You've got Christ. You have everything you'll need. He's the water of life. He's the bread of life. What are people so hungry for that they haven't found in the sufficiency of the gospel. And so Peter says very clearly, God has given his divine power and through that unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and to virtue. And so folks, tonight, we have the Holy Spirit right here inside of us. He's alive and well. We might not always recognize what his work is and what he's doing but we know what he's up to and we know that he's already here we don't need to go seeking for a second blessing we do not need to come here uh, uh, and, and try to work ourselves up into a frenzy trying to beg God for something more that we don't already have folks when you got the Holy Spirit you got sealed and what that means is, is he can't ever get out but he, you ain't getting any more of them you got them all now the question is, is does he have all of you and are you walking according to his spirit? Are you abiding in the vine? Man, that's the great question of the Christian life as we continue to grow, isn't it? But may we be discerning as we turn on our television and as we talk to our... Listen, there are brothers and sisters in Christ who believe this way. And uh, I'm going to share with them my position and why I'm a cessationist. But at the same time, I have a God who spoke this universe into existence. Can God do something miraculous? Can he do something wonderful? Absolutely he can. But I'm going to also be skeptical, rightfully so, when I see things like what I've just shared with you tonight. And I think that we also need to be that way. Be discerning, but also be understanding and be loving. I just want to leave you with this. Well, I'm going to hold off on this. Uh, it, I kind of already mentioned what uh, Dr. Felicitas Goodman said. I'll actually make that post on Facebook and you can look at it. But um, basically she just says, in fact... In, in, in all of her studies, she said that there was no distinction in glossolalia between Christians and the followers of non-Christian pagan religions. She did years of study on glossolalia, not only in Christian realms, but also in pagan tribal realms. And she said after studying all those linguists, putting all this research together, she says there was absolutely no distinction between Christian glossolalia and pagan glossolalia. Which, if you think about it, going back to 1 Corinthians 14, that makes sense. 
because you had a pagan influence from the temple of Apollo, from the city of Delphi, and they, unfortunately, I believe, influenced the city of Corinth in that practice. Now, um, you don't see it for 1,800 years, which is fascinating, but then it pops up in 1901. Why did it pop up? What's going on? I can't answer all those questions tonight, but I hope that this has helped you. I hope going through some of the history has helped you, and also going back to some of these scriptures that we looked at this morning. Uh, Let's close in a word of prayer.